Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. All right, all right, everybody. Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast. I'm Paul LeFevre, and I'm here with my Ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. Uh, and today is our first podcast of the new year. Happy New Year. It is January 7th, Friday, 2022, and we want to get this year off to a great start. Uh, we have a special guest on today. His name is Patrick O'Kelly, uh, and he has written, amongst other books, Triple Canopy, a Warrior's Journey from Grenada to Iraq. And so I'm just excited to be out here with Mike, and we're having Pat, and we're going to have a great time. Yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Pat, are you there, buddy? Hey. Hey, my friend. How are you doing? Happy New Year. Taking it easy. The yeah. next time we crawl into Pineland. <laughs> Yeah, man, we're and uh, yeah, we're uh, in an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland. <laughs> Hopefully, no one will ever find out where we're at. Yeah, it could be ugly. Yeah, but uh, so I just want to give a little bit more about Patrick. Uh, Pat, uh, he actually started off in eighty second. Uh, then he was in Third Ranger Battalion, and then he was in Fifth Special Forces Group. Uh, one heck of a mile American for those of you who know him. Uh, also, uh, he's a guy who's been there, done it, got all the T-shirts. So it's just exciting. Uh, having read your book, Pat, uh, it's exciting to know you, work with you, and uh, just really to talk about your book and anything else you want to talk about. I'm here. Well, you know, uh, Triple Canopy is a little bit, Different in it, Pat. It's it's not like your typical biography. I mean, you've done you've done something a little bit different with this with this book. Why don't you uh, why don't you enlighten our listeners? In my military career, I was in for twenty years, and I went into my military career a little bit different. But I was a kid. I was fascinated by history because my dad my dad was one of the guys that started special forces, and he he went into special forces back in nineteen sixty one, I think it was, wow. and uh. And so growing up, my dad had this, you know, whole love of history and he basically projected that onto me. When I went into the military, I decided I was going to keep a diary, a journal. And I did that. And I did that for 20 years. So everything I did, I wrote down. Um, Now, when I wrote Triple Canopy, this was actually not my first book. Triple Canopy was my, what the heck was that? It was my, my fifth book or sixth book. Right. And all the other books I wrote were about the Revolutionary War and uh, the two Carolinas. Well, I finally decided, all right, I need to put what I did down. But I also didn't want to write 20 years worth of what I did because I figured I'd bore the crap out of everybody. And so hmm. what I decided was I would pick these stories. And the, the Triple Canopy, you know, everybody, I, I still, I have a Facebook page, Triple Canopy, that was made for the book. And I still get people coming in from a, you know, people from, I don't know, Latin America, Central America, all these people around the world asking me for a job because they think I'm the other triple canopy. <laughs> and it's like, no, dude, I'm a book. I'm not a, I'm not a canopy. That's awesome. Well, the, 
I, I chose that name before there was a triple canopy organization that became the famous triple canopy. And that's because there was a ranger site. It was called AR.com. It doesn't exist anymore. But AR.com, they would label everybody. And if you had all three tabs, the Airborne Ranger Special Forces, they just nicknamed you Triple Canopy. And I right. thought that was a cool name for a book, so I called it Triple mm-hmm. Canopy. Now, in keeping with that, I decided I would choose three stories. One Airborne from the 82nd Airborne, one Ranger from the 3rd Ranger Battalion, and one Special Forces. And I chose 5th Special Forces when I went to war in a Desert Storm. So I only did three stories. Now, it's not just a story about me either, because I went in it as a historian. I tried to write in great detail everything that was going on there. And I, I talked to other SF guys. I talked about what they did. A lot of what's in that book, no one's ever heard of, like the the, the firefight in downtown Kuwait City, the, uh, the, the little civil war going on between the uh, Palestinians and the Kuwaitis after the war, you know, things like this. And same thing with Grenada. I, I talked to all the, the Rangers over there and all these other guys and got their their stories. So I wrote it as a history book, not a book about just me. Now, I'm the central figure. It all evolves around me, but I mainly talked about everything else going on, too. Yeah, it's kind of it's, it's a really unique book in the fact that you're you're almost like this war correspondent, hmm. except you're you're not some nerdy dude that graduated from some Northeastern university with a journalism degree. I mean, you're, you know, you're a warrior first and you're out there, you know, in the muck, you know, with, with the knuckle draggers, you know, in, in, you know, in, in war, you know, giving this, you know, telling the story from the, from, from the correct perspective. I mean, from the, the, the same perspective as the people that are there doing the, you know, you know, getting it done. So it's, it's really, I don't know, I can't even think of another book that's even written like, like Triple Canopy. Yeah. I, If I, I'm trying to think of what would be like it. Maybe maybe some of the, uh, yeah, I've read a lot of books. And I, I think some of the, the, the post-World War One books where guys would write about what they did and then try to include everything, uh, that might be similar. But this one spans such a huge amount of time. It goes, mm. you know, literally from Grenada to... There's a storm. So you're looking at about a, a 10 year time period and going from conventional to special ops. And it's the beginning of a lot. Like I, I, I always tell people I created units because, mm. you know, the, the third range. Now I was plank holder. I, I was there when it was created. F Company 51st, the LERPs. I was there when it was created. Uh, the, the, the short, very short period of time for the special forces drill starts. I was the first one of those. Um, and also when, uh, when, Third battalion of fifth group basically was created because they left the old third battalion of fifth group in in, in uh, Fort Bragg. That's right. And it became third first, group. First to the third. The, the, the recreated. I was there, so I was like the creator of units. I was in all the mm-hmm. creation of units. So I got planks. I'm holding planks from like five different units. Yeah. When, so when did you enlist, Pat? June of 1979. Carter was president. Not a real good time to be in the military. Mm. And it was, you know, and I came in after you. You're, you're, uh, you're my senior. You're Paul's senior. Um, and I came in uh, 1984. So, you know, we all heard the stories about, you know, the Carter administration and being in the military uh, during those times. And then, of course, when when Reagan, 
uh, was elected and, you know, the big defense spending and, and really kind of turning the military around and dumping a lot of money and, and new equipment and all that, you know, guys like Paul and I came in after that, but you, you actually lived through it. And you were there during some really, uh, like you said, you know, you were, you happened to be in every unit that kind of started up, but there was a lot of things just besides, you know, starting up units too, uh, when you were, um, uh, you know, young and in the military. I mean, there was a lot of just, you know, changed, you know, leadership and a lot of different uh, ways of doing things. The the time period Carter was really a dark period. You know, the nickname for the 82nd, the Jumping Junkies, it was real. I mean, uh, the, the platoon sergeant was the drug dealer. The platoon <laughs> squad leaders were the guys who sold the drugs for him. And uh, just a huge amount of drug use, abuse. I, I remember a guy doing a jump. Right before he jumped, he took a tab of LSD. He don't even remember doing a jump. And uh, and this was common. I mean, it was just a real common time. And we, we did some of the strangest ways to get around training because we had no funding. Uh, my, my favorite story I always like to tell is about doing an airborne operation with no planes. And <laughs> what we did was we all got on and we drove across the drop zone and we had the paratrooper get off the truck where you'd normally land if you did jump. And they had with them their reserve and their parachute. And so when the truck got to the end of the drop zone, it honked the horn three times. Everybody then, well, undid the parachute and then rolled it back up again like they had just jumped. And they also undid the reserves. And they did this so the riggers would stay current because the riggers weren't rigging because nobody was getting any jumps because of really fuel for aircraft. And then after everybody rigged up, then you'd run to the assembly area. I actually got credit for jumping would not jumping out of an airplane. <laughs> that is crazy. I don't think people yeah. even really, I remember those stories. I mean, cause you know, you kind of alluded to it, but you know, the other thing that took place during that time was a thing called the urinalysis test. And that, <laughs> that was, you know, that. and that, yeah. and that really, that really cleared out the ranks considerably. Yeah. And it yeah. was still clearing oh. out the ranks in 1984 when I came in. The difference, it just shows that the leadership, is the thing that will create a, a military unit, even from the top. So your leadership changed. Standards were brought in. Oh, my God, standards. What a concept. Mm-hmm. And and so why never, your analysis never existed during the Carter years. Well, all of a sudden, you, you know, you either, you know, you clear up, you quit doing drugs, or you're getting kicked out. And so you had to make your mind up. <laughs> do you want to keep doing drugs or you want to get the heck out? And so everything changed. And then with that also, the creation of units and uh, the, the old attitude, well, the old saying was, you know, the, the it's morning in America, that commercial. Well, that was actually the attitude was all of a sudden people were proud to be an American again. Prior to that, it was almost a disgrace because of Vietnam and, and Watergate and everything else. I mean, it was like, an, you know, nobody really wanted to admit being patriotic. But Reagan brought it back. So leadership from the top filtered down and it created the military that, you know, went from the progression of Grenada where everything didn't quite work so well, then Panama where we, we got a bunch of the bugs knocked out, and then finally Desert Storm, the culmination, which was this huge victory. But it was a process of building everybody up and bringing in standards and, and learning from your mistakes. Well, Grenada, obviously there's a, there's a whole bunch of young folks out there that you know probably have no idea you know, Grenada was even – Number one, it didn't exist, and number two, that you know we actually invaded the place at one time. But you know, for me, I was a senior in high school, and and that was really what 
you know, got me off my butt. And I just, you know, I, I remember after that, you know, with the jump in the Point Salinas, I mean, I, I just had to be an airborne ranger. I mean, that, that was it. I mean, I, I wasn't interested in anything. Um, you know, those, those guys coming was in. there. And, yeah, those guys coming in at eight, you know. No, eight, no, I, I was there and. I decided I wanted to be a ranger because I saw him in action. I went, Who the yeah. hey, these guys are all I want to be one. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's one I thing. I mean, I love your first story just because it brings back those memories. And um, and it was just it was just awesome. We hadn't done anything that this country was proud of militarily in such a long time. And Grenada was really I remember like really just being that kind of turning point where, you know, people were just proud of their country, they were proud of their military. Um, and it, it like you said, I mean, obviously there was some bugs. There was a lot of things that, that didn't go well, but that happens in all, you know, military actions really. But, you know, it was just, it was just phenomenal seeing those guys go in and just, you know, do that incredible action uh, and the heroism. And I just remember looking at those dudes and, you know, on the cover of Newsweek and just, just saying, man, that's, that's what I got to do. I got to do that. I got to do that for a living. That just looks too cool. Yeah, a lot of good uh, cadences whenever, come out of that, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're saying, Pat? What's about Grenada? Usually it's like, oh, you, you guys invaded a country club, a golf course, a big joke, ha, ha, ha. And part of that is people really don't know what the heck happened here. And I tried to tell them in my book. It's amazing the amount of, of firefights and intense action that was seen there. And what it is is uh, the reason that people laugh about it is because Reagan – would not allow the media onto the island. And so because of that, uh, the news media decided, all right, we're going to ridicule it and make fun of it. And so from that point on, all their stories was ridicule and fun, and, and it carried on to this day. To this day, the people don't think much happened there. Meanwhile, in reality, you had almost the same parameters as Black Hawk Down. You had uh, 19 people, you know, uh, soldiers, rangers, Delta getting killed. You had, uh, like, I think it was like 175 Americans wounded. You had nine helicopters shot down. Mm. You had Delta Force that could not even get to their objective. When they came in with their Blackhawks, they got shot up so badly that they had to turn around. They couldn't even get anywhere near the objective. The SEALs hit one of their objectives, were drove away by the gunfire, had to literally go out into the water, swim out to a destroyer that had brought come close to the shore to open up and direct fire just to get the seals out. You had another group of seals that were surrounded, laid siege to, and the Marines had to land tanks to get them out. You know, on the airfield where the Rangers were, you had an armored assault. They tried to roll into the airport. You had all this stuff going on and nobody knows about it because they think it was just a big joke, but Mm. you had the same number of people killed as in Somalia. You had more helicopters shot down than in Somalia. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I honestly think Somalia is a lot worse, a lot worse. But I'm just showing, look at the comparisons, how the media and people look at Grenada and compare it to how they look at Somalia. And the difference was Somalia had a book written about it called Black Hawk Down that was written by a reporter. It was one of their own. So they accepted it and then glorified it as opposed to Grenada where they ridiculed it and made fun of it. So there was a lot of intense action that went down in Grenada. And I tried to include all that in the book. Yeah, that, that's to me. That's reason alone just to, just to pick up the book, is because uh, that you know your very first story, which is when you were in the eighty second. Um, you know, and I spent time in the three twenty fifth, just like uh, just like you did. So, 
Um, and I also remember uh, the stories uh, from Grenada because uh, when, I, when I ended up finally getting to ranger school um, in 1987, uh, needless to say, every RI there was a Grenada veteran. So, um, you know, they, they had, you know, we, we got to hear the stories and everything else. So you're absolutely right. Those guys were proud of their, their service and what they did there. Yeah. It, it was nothing but uh, it certainly wasn't jumping into a country club. Yeah, major goalpost that no one has ever met since or before. You always hear people brag about how you know, we can deploy anywhere in the world in 18 hours. There's only been one unit that has ever actually done that, and that was the second battalion, 325th, deployed at 18 hours from the point of go to the point they were on the island of shooting was within that 18 hour sequence. Wiped out. Only one unit yeah. has ever done it. Piece of history right there. So uh, what about your second story? Why don't you give us a little background on, on uh, the second story. It's kind of fascinating and uh, why you picked it. Because it's, it's a little different. It's a little different type of story. I honestly think the second story the, that I wrote is probably the best writing I've ever done. Uh, it, it's, almost, it's almost written like a novel where there's dialogue back and forth. And what it was, it was uh, the story of when 3rd Range of Battalion first started. And when we first started, it was almost like a cohort unit because we were taking privates right out of basic training and, and boom, right into a battalion because you had to. I mean, it was, it was like a battalion-wide rip where, you know, or now do they call it RASP. So battalion-wide RASP where you had to do it. Otherwise, you'd never get the battalion stood up. You had to bring in all these these young, you know, privates. And then all of the NCOs and stuff came from Ranger Battalions or like, and a few of us like me came from the 82nd. And uh, anyway, the uh, uh, when we started up, everybody it was a really tight, close knit unit because we had done everything together. And the story is about the death, the friendly fire death of one of the men in my squad. Uh, his name was Russell Hobgood, and Russell Hobgood was killed in a training accident on a range. So the entire story is about the reaction of within the squad of that friendly fire death. And, and what also made it tragic was his wife was nine months pregnant and his mm -hmm. wife was like 18 years old, oh, was only like 19 years old, maybe 20. And so it was the, the, the impact that that death had on all of us and how it affected all of us. And, and so that, that story is, like I said, I, I think it's probably the best thing I've ever written. Yeah, it's, it's all it's all fun and games, and it's you know, it's, it's great doing the the hua stuff. And uh, but there is the the flip side of it, and that is occasionally we lose people, and occasionally people get seriously injured. Um, so right. I, I think I, I think that's what's really neat about the book is it's really kind of showing the you know the whole spectrum, if you will, of emotions and things that people go through that serve. Yeah, Pat, I. Uh... I like how you also you highlight a lot of the leadership uh, styles and qualities that uh, we, you know, those of us have served uh, can recognize. And I think you, you highlight a lot of that in your first first part of your book. And I saw a lot of it in uh, the second part, in Death in a Family, Death in the Family, uh, about the Third Ranger Battalion and the, the, uh, the American you just mentioned who died. Uh, but yeah, can you, that's something I wanted to, to pin you to the wall if I could is about leadership, what you learned as far as that was different in the 82nd, that was different in the Rangers. Um, 
you know, maybe just if you could, yeah. The thing that changed me personally is being in the Rangers. Uh, I, I, I basically immersed myself into Ranger culture and the, the whole idea of the Ranger creed. You do not violate the Ranger creed. I mean, here I am, I'm, I'm 60 years old and I still know the Ranger creed by heart. I mean, that's, you know, so it was driven into you that if you violate this, you would not be a Ranger. And sure enough, our very first Ranger battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Ohl, and Lieutenant Colonel Ohl came out in front of the formation and he said, I violated the creed and he resigned. Wow. And that was a huge impact to me. Like, holy crap, the top faced the entire battalion. That he said he violated the creed and he can't be a Ranger anymore. And Colonel Ohl was a kind of a legendary <laughs> guy. He's one of those Rangers from Vietnam. Yeah. I've never even heard of that, man. That's that's I mean, uh, that, that's that, serious integrity. Does that type of leadership with accountability I don't even think that exists exist anymore? anymore? I don't think so. That type of leader does exist. But unfortunately, I don't think at the higher levels. You see it a lot at the lower levels where guys will literally put their entire career on the line because they, they're doing what's right, but it ends up destroying. And I, I've known a few that did that. I know my, my best friend is a, a guy who was a sergeant major in the 82nd and he was destroyed be not by any action that he did but because his colonel basically went down and he went down with him but you know those two were were the right people unfortunately they were destroyed so unfortunately we we live in a culture now where the the ones who actually have standards and stand up to what's right normally don't last long because they're they're standing up to what's right you know yeah that's absolutely right pat i think that's uh well we had a marine colonel recently yeah kind <laughs> of exemplify that yeah uh, that, was, that was critical of uh, the senior leadership uh, but they ended up they ended up putting him out um but yeah and the units you were in really uh i mean these were the cream of the crop uh the units you're in you're in the 82nd you're a paratrooper Right, you're in the Third Ranger Battalion, and then you're in Fifth Special Forces. I mean, that's uh, that's the elite. You're in an elite units, and so you saw the best of the best NCOs, officers, and so that's basically your entire career has been around meat eaters. And that that I've seen I had the a, worst. I yeah, mean, I, and uh, you know, I had one officer tell me that I was being awfully hard on officers. It's like, well, the people I wrote about, you need to be hard on them because they were. They, they didn't meet the standards. So, yeah, I did, you, you met the best and the worst. It's, yeah. it's kind of like I told somebody once in combat. You really don't know how they're going to react in combat. Everybody thinks they're going to be, you know, running to the sound of gunfire and uh, brave as all get up. But I saw some guys that, you know, I thought were studly and minute rockets came in. They freaked out and ran around in circles. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, guys that you thought wouldn't stand up, they, they're the ones who ended up with, you know, silver stars. And so, uh, it's, it's the same thing with leadership. You, you there's a lot of leaders out there that are all talk, but they didn't stand by what they did. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. You know, yeah. do as I do, not do as I say. Yeah. That's really what I was wanting to get at. You're, you're right. So you had that, I mean, you carried that forward and, uh, I mean, you, we could go off in a long discussion on this, but I think you see these days, it would be good to return to that. It would be good to return to the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ohl and say, "Hey, I violated the creed, and I can no longer be your commander." You know that. What? What? How different 
would our uh, army be now and our nation if we had leaders that had that type of moral fiber that would be willing to do that? What a difference. It'll need a, it'll need a, you know, somebody from the top that would change it from the top down. Because hardly anything gets changed from the bottom up. Because, yeah. you know, way the bottom tries to change stuff, they'll just crush them. You got to have a top leader. So it's, it's from Absolutely there. right. Well, I don't think that's going to be happening in the next couple of years, unfortunately. Um, you never know. You, you never you know. asked about Ron. Everybody thought Ron was an you know, actor. Here, so here's, nobody saw that kind of That's true. Um, well, let's go. Let's let's kind of transition to the third um, the third story because I think having served like like you did um, in the conventional uh, army in the infantry uh, and in uh, Ranger Regiment, uh, SF is a little different, and it's it's a it's a totally different type of environment. It's it's a different structure. Um, what what do you what are your thoughts about making that transition to going from the third Ranger Battalion where you're really you know, it's very regimented. It's very, you know, everybody, everybody looks alike. Everyone's doing the same thing. And then all of a sudden you find yourself uh, in group. I didn't have a hard time transitioning. It's, I think the biggest thing was because a bunch of special forces units had stood up in a fairly short period of time. Cause that's within about a five year time period. You, you had a brand new first range of battalion. I mean, first uh, special forces group. You had the third, uh, you had, uh, what was another one, but there was all these, these, uh, a bunch of national guard ones, but they were brand new. And so you had a bunch of folks get into these that really weren't up to standard. And so you, it was, a, it was a rough time trying to, uh, basically find our niche in life because you guys, and the other thing was the higher chain of commands, like Schwarzkopf at Desert Storm. He really didn't want to use special ops. And he didn't, he didn't understand it. He didn't understand the tool that he had. And so we, we almost had to go out of our way to make our own jobs. And actually, that's what we did in the beginning. Uh, we had a – I'm trying to think of who the group commander was. I think it was Jesse Johnson. I th- that sounds right. I might be getting the name wrong. But he was the group commander. And he, he went out of his way to find jobs for SF, unlike today where, you know, you get assigned and you're, you're good. But we, we had to literally create it. And the idea of a UW environment, last time that had ever happened was Vietnam. And so trying to get, find a place where you can do UW and, you know, we were trying our hardest to try to get in Kuwait city and get with the Kuwaiti underground, the Palestinians and who were going against Iraq, but we weren't allowed to go into it. We weren't allowed to go in there. So we ended up creating these jobs. And one was we created the uh, job, the idea that, okay, every foreign unit out here, we'll put an SF unit with them. That way, uh, you will have an, an basically an English-speaking guy on the ground that can mainly call in airstrikes. So we ended up being a big airstrike unit. Mm. Then also, you had another group that was the CSAR. You know, we're going to create guys that are going to rescue these pilots because we expected to have massive amount of pilots shot down. We did. We did a lot. Both planes got shot down. And then the third one was the eyes on the target. Not really meant to go out and engage, but just to watch the SR, the, uh, the special reconnaissance. That's where I was. You know, we were doing SR. We were, we were on the border for about three months before the war ever began. And we we're basically pretending that we were Saudi Border Patrol. And so trying to get guys, because you asked, what was it like transitioning? And it was mainly trying to get these guys who are all, almost everybody was new to UW to SF. 
and get him in that mindset where we're not in the regular army anymore. And so there was a lot of button heads, a lot of, uh, you know, not getting along and, and almost beating each other to, to fit into this niche of being special forces. Now it's not that big of a deal because now you have groups where there's a lot of experience. But back then, you really didn't have a lot of experience on each of the A-teams. You might only have two or three people on an A-team that were SF for more than, you know, four or five years. And the rest were brand new, only been SF for like a year. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. I remember the stories where, um, just like you said, uh, teams would get over there and they were looking for work. And, uh, and traditionally, the Air Force had performed the job of CSAR. Um, and yes, some of the SF teams that were smart, I remember them, uh, you know, talking to them and they were like, you know, we can do this job better than these guys. And they, and they would, they would, you know, practice and practice and rehearse and, and fine tune their SOPs and figure out exactly how they, you know, wanted to do this thing and, and video themselves doing it, you know, from start to finish. Um, and then send that video to General Schwarzkopf staff. And that's how a lot, a lot of these guys ended up getting these missions is because they literally had to go out there and, and show the, the top brass that, you know, not only can we do this job, you know, just like <coughs> someone else can, but we can actually do it better. And here's yeah. the proof. thing that came out of that is probably the most successful UW mission America has ever done was when we went into Afghanistan with just 400 guys and ended up yeah. taking it. And those guys – was, you got to figure that's only 10 years away from Desert Storm. So a lot of experienced guys stay with SF. So now you had you know, totally experienced teams who knew what to do, who knew how to do UW now. Uh, another, another big problem we had in the early days was a lot of guys came from Ranger Battalion. And they got into SF and they were kind of totally disappointed because they, they wanted to kick in doors and shoot people. And there wasn't a lot of kicking in doors and shooting people with SF at that time. It was mainly get in there. With the you know the uh, somebody from another country convince them to you know fight for you, train them, and get them to follow you you know go into battle with them, and there wasn't a lot of door kicking, and so it was, it was a different mindset. Um, unfortunately, uh, today SF is kind of a door kicking unit, and they do all sorts of kicking in doors, shoot people in the face. But I honestly don't think that special forces today could pull off what they did in Afghanistan in 2001. Those guys are gone. That 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 skill of UW. So the UW is going to have to be retaught. So if we ever do have to do another mission, where going into an area and convince thousands of, you know, the, the, the guys from that nation, like the Northern Alliance to fight for us. And, and, and on top of that, you know, these guys had to do it on horseback. They didn't know how to ride a horse. They just adapted that quickly. And so I, the big challenge for special forces is going to be getting back into the UW mindset or else they're going to lose that job and just end up being a, a glorified ranger battalion kicking indoors. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's the same thing. I mean, you know, <clears throat> Afghanistan kind of drug on for such a long time that, um, you know, the, t the these teams were having to relearn, you know, how to do a FID, you know, how to do foreign internal defense, how to actually go in and, and train other uh, militaries in a peacetime sort of environment. But, um, everyone was just so occupied going in and out of Afghanistan. Of course, you know, when they come out for tour, I mean, you know, they're exhausted. They want to spend time with the family. They want to kind of, you know, get ready for the next deployment. I mean, they were coming hot and heavy there for a while. I mean, everybody was, that's all, that's all anybody was doing was just going back and forth to Afghanistan. 
So, uh, yeah, I think SF is, I think now, I think it's just like what you said. I think uh, they're really just trying to get all those other skill sets kind of back up to par where they need to be. Well, tell, tell us about your story uh, in, your, in, the third, in the third story, Pat. Why don't you elaborate a little bit on that story? Yeah, hey, hey Pat, on that note, uh, there were, as part of your story, uh, what part of it uh, uh, in, did uh, were you involved, like being in a trench, or not a trench, but in like a dugout, uh, kind of being the eyes? I, f- I remember oh, yeah, a part of right. that. You were you kind of had some eyes on at some point of your uh, mission over there. Oh, was um, yes, uh, first off, we yeah. there was at a we were the mobility team. Right. And what I don't even know if they have that now, but back then called the mobility team. And what it is is just one unit, one one team in each battalion had the brand new Humvees. And they were kind of modified for desert use, so they were called Dumvees. Right. Desert mobility vehicles instead of Humvee. So anyway, we had the Dumvees. And so we had an A team of twelve guys that was spread out across about a forty mile area. And we had it broke down in not split team concept, we were three team concept, where we had four four and four across the border and with these four there was a there was a, some radio intercept guys from uh from psyops and so in each of these outposts you had maybe six guys so there was two vehicles six guys and each vehicle you had one 50 caliber one mark 19. mark 19 was brand new too nobody ever used that thing uh in in the army and so we had to learn from scratch how to do that so we learned from scratch how to drive a new vehicle and from scratch a new weapon and new radio equipment and new everything. But anyway, we were up on the border with the Saudi Border Patrol and the Saudi Special Forces. And all we would do is, is patrol at night, not in the daytime, because we didn't want them to see our vehicles. We did not let want them to know Americans were there. So if we ever did anything in the daylight, we hopped in the Toyota cruisers with the, uh, with the Saudis and would go. And at one point, our team leader actually went across into Iraq and had basically tea with the Iraqis with the Saudis. Uh, they were there because they invited them over. It's like, oh, we're not at war yet. We're still friends and all that. <laughs> Our team leader was, was able to speak some Arabic. Uh, well, we all did. We spoke Arabic. But he didn't say much. And mainly the Iraqis just thought that the Americans were a bunch of Syrians. They didn't know we were Americans. So we pulled that off. As we were actually over there in Iraq having tea with them, a few months before the war began. So we kept an eye on everything the Iraqis did. Whenever they, they were putting in a fire trench or whatever, we reported back what we saw. Hmm. Then the night of Desert Storm, when it actually happened, we left and just started being a mobile eyes unit. We were the, we were the, the tri, you know, the tripwire. You know, the, so when the Iraqis were going to come, we would be able to be the first to see them, call in airstrikes, everything else. And so we did that for about 15 days until the army finally caught up to us on the border. But uh, for 15 days, I called it the Mad Max existence. We were running around, keeping an eye on everything. We got gas from an old gas station. Uh, we would literally take a bucket, and throw the bucket down into the where the, the, the wells of gas, pull it out and pour it into the vehicle. Or not gas, it was diesel. But still, we poured it in the vehicle. Uh we had MREs, but we didn't want to use them because we didn't know what would happen with the war heart. We actually planned to E&E to Israel. That, that was our E&E plan because we didn't want to E&E back through the 101st because we thought they'd show us, kill us because of all a bunch of privates. So our plan was to go to Israel. So we we're going to hang on to our food. So what we ate 
was it was like Quickie Mart's uh, at, a, at a town about 10 miles off the border called Asher Kilo. Actually, 10 kilometers, Asher Kilo. And uh, we, we went in there and we robbed the freaking store of, of all the food. And we're, you know, whenever we want chips or something, we go over there and bust it in and get it. So I call it the Mad Max existence. And we wore a combination of Saudi clothes and American clothes. And like I had a goat, a wool goat vest. I looked like, I swear to God, I looked like a Viking. And, uh, <laughs> and so we just rode around, looking, keeping eyes on everything. And the Iraqis constantly were trying to kill us. I mean, they, they sent rockets out all the time. And we got pretty good at predicting where the rockets were going to hit. I think the Iraqis had a, a price on our head. If you could get an SF guy, 10,000 Iraqi dinar. And so we actually had Iraqis come across the border bounty hunting. And we were able to take them. One was an Iraqi artillery regiment commander. And we, we snatched him up with his because th- he thought he was going to get over there and get an SF guy. We took him easy. So... Uh, yeah, it was just an interesting – for 15 days, it was living like Mad Max. It was very interesting. Yeah, it's a completely different uh, – and it was a totally – I mean, completely different experience than the one you had before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like you said. You know, going in Grenada, it was an – you're, you're fighting out of a basically a bridgehead, an airfield, to try to, to, to establish a line. Meanwhile, in Desert Storm, it was zooming all over in Iraqi's backyard just <laughs> – creating mayhem and the second half to desert storm that was after that we pulled back and we had to train a kuwaiti unit to go take kuwait city and these guys were right off the street they had no uniforms they wore sneakers they had no training at all and we had two weeks to train them to be an army and then go take kuwait city and we did it (laughs) and that's 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 sf i mean that is it that is yeah that is folk arabic and we had one guy in our unit. He was fluent in like six languages, and he was a he was a godsend. Hey, so I wanted to, if I could, I could put you on the spot here, Pat. Uh, just ask you a personal question. Uh, you mentioned that earlier, and I think a lot of guys, you know, in the army, especially the guys who were around in McCall and all that, a lot of them don't have combat experience, and so they just it's like they're. Uh, virgins studying sex. They don't really know what it's like, right, until they're in the fray. So if you pardon the expression, it's a little graphic, right? But uh, I guess my question is, you know, what's that like uh, when you're, you know, just for our guys that don't know, when you're in combat the first time and, uh, you know, everything you train for, you know, it, it, it much or you know, less and more or less ways made sense or didn't make sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It all comes down to training. If you train as realistically as you can, it, when the real thing happens, it's not going to freak you out as much. Yeah. I, I, I talk to, you know, a bunch of people about PTSD and I always say the people who tend to always have like the worst case of PTSD are the people that really didn't have the right mindset when they went to war. And so yeah. it shocked them to the point that it well said for That's life. Right. Yeah. And it didn't go into it with the right mindset. We had a really good uh, set of commanders and, and their overall battalion commander for the 82nd was a guy called uh, his nickname was Mad Jack, Mad Jack Hamilton. And he was a ranger in Vietnam and he did some training that the rest of the 82nd wasn't doing. And so it really got us into the right mindset. 
and uh, and and even odd stuff. For example, we at one point our unit was the number one marksman unit in in uh, force comp because we entered the force comp competition. And think about that: a battalion entering a competition. And what we did was we because Mad Jack knew that if you entered the competition, the army would give you extra bullets, and so he entered the whole battalion. And we got massive amounts of ammo. Holy cow, we went to the range and we trained like special forces. We were firing cases of ammo. And he did that. It was that's he was able to find a way around training. And that was, oh, I can do this. And so it worked. We actually won the competition. But better than that, we had a unit that was just incredible number of marksmen and just massive training. And but there was other things he did. Uh, and it was just all this training we did that got us ready. So when we actually went to war, uh, there was a few guys that I would say were, you know, chickens and cowardly and ran away, but not many. Uh, like myself, everybody always says when you get in war, you're always scared. I don't know if I'm a weird fluke or what. Every time I've been in combat, I've never been scared. And that, that may sound weird to anybody who's been in combat because it's like, I wasn't. I was I just really hyper aware. And yeah. if stuff was happening, I... I it, Pretty freaked out. I mean, obviously, a bullet snaps beside your head. You're going to hit the dirt. But I consider it more like a jump scare in a movie and not a real scare. It's just a reaction. Yeah. But I, I would never crawled up in a ball, stuck my thumb, and was afraid. I never went there. But also, I didn't see anybody else either. And I take that all due to the training we had. Yeah. Now, unlike that, in Desert Storm for 18, there was actually a guy that was really scared to the point, like, it, it was it was terrified. And he did things that could get the team killed. So, but then again, I told you, we started fifth group with guys who were brand new to this and didn't have a lot of training. So we went from the 82nd, that was, our unit was really trained up under Mad Jack Hamilton. And then in, in Desert Storm, they weren't as trained as much. And so you had guys that freaked out, panicked, and, you know, just, it, it shouldn't have had the right training. Yeah. Well, you, met, you mentioned Matt Jack Hamilton. He was a triple canoper as well. Um, you know, he, uh, he was my brigade commander, so I, mean, I, I know who you're talking about. He's kind of a legend himself. But uh, um, yeah, I think I think you said something there when you were talking about the PTSD and the training. And I think it even goes back farther than that. Um, your upbringing as a child. Um, you know how much sort of you know were, were you. Did you have a helicopter mom? I mean, were you shielded? Or did you have one of those uh, experiences when you're growing up where you were allowed to kind of get out and venture out and uh, get in trouble and uh, solve problems, um, try not to get caught, uh, see crazy things? Uh, you know, how much mental, you know, ability are you able to sort of realize that, you know, it's a really – it's a really big world with a lot of varying different experiences. And I think, I think uh, you alluded to the fact that if you are properly trained and if you've, if you experience a lot of uh, various different types of stresses, um, I think that all helps to kind of mentally prepare you for combat. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, you got to figure uh, you asked about my mom, helicopter mom. I don't think helicopter moms existed back then. 1960s mom, smoke a cigarette and tell you, to, hey, it sucks to be you. Get up, quit bleeding. That's right. You know, that kind of mom. And uh, I grew up in, uh, like I told you, my dad was special forces. And he was in, he he went from, and I mentioned this, I write a little bit about him in the book. 
he lied about his age and went into the military when he was 15. And he's one of the guys that started Special Forces. And he ended up getting a battlefield commission because he did a, a thing with the CIA in Vietnam. And because he got a battlefield commission, he decided he wanted a hard commission. And he went from being a sergeant to an officer. And he retired as a colonel. And so he went from a private to a colonel and is in 20, I think his career was 27 years. Now, growing up, my next door neighbors were these guys that were legends. I just didn't know it. They were just next door neighbors. Like the guy who was my direct next door neighbor was uh, uh, Mr. Williams, who ended up being, you know, he was a Sante Raider. I didn't know that. I just knew him as Mr. Williams. And uh, and I think he got a silver star in Sante. And his, his brother got a medal of honor. But anyway, he... Uh, um, I grew up around these guys. So when I went into the military, the idea of like special forces being this, this goal that was impossible to seek. My attitude was like, well, heck, Mr. Williams, a goofball. If he could do it, so could I. <laughs> and so I went into everything like that. Like, Hey, that guy can do it. So could I. And so, yeah, it was definitely upbringing was, is, is, you know, the, it was, I'm not gonna say it was hard. I had a good childhood. I didn't have a trouble one. I didn't have a rough one. Grew up in military bases, moved around a lot. And, uh, and, you know, did, my dad wasn't around a lot because he was running around the world, saving the world for democracy. <laughs> and uh, but I didn't I didn't have a shoulder about that either. I understood. Hey, Pat, I wanted to ask you this, too. This is kind of a big question, maybe a, a deep one. But uh, out of all your experiences, maybe you could just share something uh, as far as like a lesson learned, like one of your big lessons learned in your career that uh, you could just kind of share with us. You have so many, but just Over maybe just maybe one. Yeah. I think I have influenced a lot of people. Uh, I mean, you know one of them, the guy I run around with in Pineland. He, yeah. he, he went into the military because of me. And so I, I think the biggest lesson learned is is for leadership. Yeah. Always do as I do as Jim. Lead by example. Yeah. And it's everything you do. It's really that you simple. Know what you're being watched. <laughs> yeah. You're always being watched. Somebody's watching you, sizing you up, trying to just make a decision. But the folks that are under you are sizing you up to determine, do I want to be like this guy? You know, not the fact that, hey, can this guy give me an order while falling, but do I want to be like this guy? And so the goal is trying to create the next generation. And I've done that my entire career. Because after I got out of the military, I was a junior ROTC instructor for 20 years. Right. And so it's wow, always you know, trying to make the next generation biggest one is if you, to be a good leader lead by example and you can't be afraid to stand up it may destroy you if you speak the truth and stand up but so what you know it, it the, the way i look at it is again my buddy who the sergeant major who was literally forced out of the military forced to retire however all the men in his unit will do anything for him i mean they 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 knew that he stood up for him mm. and so even though he was crushed the, the big army crushed him, but all his men, all the people he served with, they look upon him like the, the, the best credit there is. And ironically, and whenever they have reunions in his unit, they always invite him and not the other guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's what I get out of you. My friend is, uh, you're, you're a man who recognizes, uh, that, you know, honor, honor and integrity are huge, uh, for a yes. warrior. And uh, you would uh, just assume uh, die before you would dishonor your country, dishonor the unit you're in. And that, that's kind of what I get from you. 
And I think I think the guys that uh, you know we hang out with our our clientele, our people that we are people we run with are pretty much the same cut of cloth. That's that's you know super important. And and I think uh, I mean before we're going to see things become better in our country is like you said. That's why I'm really hearing from you is you know uh, the changes in values have to change has to start from the top. And uh, you know nothing's going to change unless you know leaders. Um, I guess underscore the importance of honor and values, and and uh, yeah, something like that. I look because I think we're about to see something happen that hasn't happened in a long time. And after World War II, you had this huge influx into Congress of veterans because everybody was a veteran. I think you're about to see that because now that Afghanistan's over and that that forever war is over. Yeah. You're, you're starting to see a huge influx of veterans going into Congress and because they want to you know, make the country better. So I'm thinking we might see a bright age coming up here where it is going to get better because you're going to have all these people who have that combat experience and that mentality moving into the halls of Congress. I'm hoping they keep their honor and they don't lose it because it's so tough. I bet the temptation is too great. The, the money and riches are too great. But, you know, can you hold out? And not sell your soul, you know. It's, it's a tough one. But I'm hoping uh, I got hope for the future that you're yeah. going to influx of veterans to the Congress here soon. That's a good way to start off this new year, Pat. Is uh, you know just uh, we're turning over a new leaf with the new year, and you know this could be a great year. And you're right. I mean, we do we did have a forever war. We were there. All of us served there, and but uh, that would be good. I mean, you have uh, and it is. There's a temptation to. To give in, you know that money, uh, you know fame, all that stuff. But I think I think what I'm hearing from you too is if you have a good foundation, a good moral fiber foundation, then it's it's not gonna it's gonna hold up. And yeah, we we definitely need that. Well, besides all you know the, the books that you've written, uh, Pat, uh, you know you got you got a lot of other interesting hobbies and things that you uh, absolutely that you're involved in. What, what, why don't you, uh, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about the ferret. <laughs> Matt Alice. Matt Alice. Matt Alice. Little Alice. Yeah. Alice, little Alice. Something else. But, but oh, little Alice. Little Alice is my ferret. It's ferret is a, is a uh, armored scout car. Man. And, uh, and this whole thing came about because of, uh, uh, we were sitting around in, in during Robin Sage, shooting the breeze about what is your dream car? And, uh, and I said, you know, I want an armored car, a street legal armored car. And my buddy, Bert, who was also does Robin Sage with me, he whips out the phone because he's my enabler. And he whips out a phone and shows a picture of me. I went, oh, no, I don't want that one. He whips out and shows me another one. I went, oh, that's cool. And so within one year's time, I went from a kicking around the idea at a diner in Pineland to owning this ferret that I, I had. <laughs> it was restored by the British Museum, shipped over to the U.S., and it's street legal. It's got a machine gun in the turret. <laughs> it's got a turret. It fits two people, smaller than most pickup trucks. It weighs five tons, but it's smaller than a pickup truck. In fact, I could probably put my ferret inside my F-450 uh, flatbed. But I, I, I did this mainly just because. Uh, and, and But secondly, I did it because, you know what? This would be a cool asset to use during Robin Sage. Make this the bad guy. Make this the quick reaction force that comes in and you know wipes you out if you stay on the objective too long. So yeah, we have a blast 
for this and I named it little Alice after my wife. My wife is original Alice. And so she's little Alice. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, it, I even got painted little Alice on the turret. Just hung on her. Yeah. And it does uh, strike fear in the hearts of students. <laughs> <laughs> well, first time they see it. Oh, my God. Is that, is that like a, W? Holy crap, it's got a machine gun yeah, on it. Oh my God, it's the worst <laughs> nightmare. It's got, a, it's got a machine gun that works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's what a, that's a scary little that? vehicle. Listen, besides uh, besides the Robin Sage, uh, what else have you been able to do with Little Alice? I mean, have you, ever, have you, guys, have you guys go out to some of these other events and let people you know, look at it and what have you? Or? I, I really that much. Uh, I, I did a couple of my, my other way I do is reenacting, Revolutionary War reenacting, yeah. and World War One reenacting. And so I, I took it to one of these, what's called a timeline show. I really haven't showed it off that much. Uh, the, the other fellow I talked about, Bert, he works in Hollywood. He's on the set of The Walking Dead right now. And uh, he, he advises and, and you know basically is the armor and things like that. And we're trying to get little Alice the Ferret into Hollywood and use it. And so once we do that, we'll you know, have a blast with it. Other than that, I, I just use it to go to the grocery store and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, because uh, oh so you, if, if you're anywhere around Fayetteville or uh, Sand or Spring Lake, you might see a little green armor car zipping around. That's me. Sitting, sitting in the uh, parking lot of Food Lion, just getting your groceries. Uh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I tell you what, I think the fair would be awesome on, like, you know, the, the set of The Walking Dead. I mean, I think it'd be just yeah. cool just to see something like that. Yep. I think it should have a camera. Every time a movie comes in, <laughs> oh, there's a ferret. There's a ferret in that movie. Look at him. I go, the movie just came out called A Free Guy. It was a, a comedy. But he, he's got a collection of all these arms and weapons and stuff that he's taken from our people. And there was a ferret. I went, oh, there's a ferret. It could be mine. I could have got there. <laughs> hey, yeah. Pat, I wanted to ask you, too, about your other books that you have, just so that our listeners know. Uh, you did mention that you're a reenactor. Uh, for the Revolutionary War, and I think that you, uh, f- if memory serves, uh, you specialize, amongst other things, with uh, Francis Marion. Is that correct? Well, I did a book about Francis Marion that I'm going to re-release it here, probably this year, uh, but it's it's called an orderly book. And what it is is all the orders that, that Marion told people to do was written down. And so I transcribe these. These are all in Marion's words. And Marion, most people think Marion is the swamp fox, the guerrilla fighter. But he was a really excellent conventional commander, too. I mean, he commanded the uh, Fort Sullivan in South Carolina when the British fleet tried to invade and take it. That's right. And they drove him back. It was the first of the Royal Navy in like 250 years. And, uh, And so he was a conventional commander. And then just through a sheer, I don't know, fate, he didn't get captured in Charleston when it fell. And yeah. so he ended up this guy who knows how to lead people in the backwoods of, of, you know, Georgetown, South Carolina. And all of a sudden he raised a little militia army to take him on. So he did the orderly book is conventional orders, but he also kept the orderly book when he was a guerrilla fighter. So I transcribe all these, but I also do a history in between. A lot of the history I'd already written because I have a four volume set called nothing but blood and slaughter. Right. And it's about every single action that happened in the two Carolinas. That's mm. over 950 actions. Wow. So uh, there's a lot of guerrilla warfare going on then, a lot. I got to figure, you know, for the, the South, it was called, well, in fact, the, the, the name of the book, Nothing But Blood and Slaughter. That was a quote from 
the American General Green, talking mm. about fighting in North Carolina and South Carolina. He said that if the people don't desist, it will be nothing but blood and slaughter because it was a, a bloody civil war. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of guerrilla warfare going on. Think of uh, but the best way to think of it is uh, think of Bosnia in the 1990s. It was like yeah. that, but it was a, it's such a bloody level. But anyway, I, I took most I didn't I'm saying I took most, I didn't cut and paste, but I I took what I had and then updated it a little bit. And so that's in the Francis Marion book. Yeah, and I'm going to try. Reason it's yeah. not out right now publisher that was kind of me over and so i had to stop publication of the, the two books the triple canopy and francis marion and but i'm yeah. going to re-release francis marion 2022 i just got to get back in there and re-edit it one more time but it's a huge book it looks like a telephone book it's so big yeah it's the if... largest orderly book <clears throat> since because most orderly books in war only go for like four months or five months his went for eight years wow they kept them apart. Yeah, it's nearly. Uh, I think it's so that's seven hundred forty-three pages. So it's the extensive. The other cool part was yeah. California during the Civil War. The records. Uh, I don't know how it got there, but because of that the Yankees didn't burn them up, and so that's another reason why it's one of the few that exists. Mm. Nice. And then uh, for those uh, that didn't hear, uh, Triple Canopy is uh, Pat's newest book. Uh, well, re-released uh, with another uh, publisher. We're happy to announce that's with Blast Blacksmith Publishing, uh, Triple Canopy, A Warrior's Journey from Grenada to Iraq. And we were talking about that earlier. So uh, if you want to hear, uh, read more about uh, Pat and his exploits for the United States, uh, about the barrel-chested freedom fire there it is, uh, go to Amazon, go to Blacksmith Publishing, get that book. It's, uh, it's a great read. I enjoy it. I get a lot out of it. And I think it's a resource that I can turn to for many years to come to get uh, uh, just insights. And uh, if you're ever feeling sorry for yourself, you can just read that. <laughs> That'll kind of uh, get the cerebral juices and your testosterone uh, uh, soaring through your body again. That's right. It's like spraying yourself with a big can of man. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, Pat, I, I tell you what, I'm, I'm just glad you you're able to call in and uh, – get you on the podcast and, and talk yeah. about triple canopy. Um, and for those of you that, uh, you know, love this kind of stuff, uh, you know, Pat's an accomplished author. So he has a lot of, a lot of great yep. books out there. Um, and I think, uh, I think you'd enjoy his style of writing. Yep. And, uh, if you guys didn't catch that, uh, Pat has, uh, nothing but blood and slaughter. I believe that's a four volume, uh, yep. work. Uh, and it, it takes you all through uh, the Revolutionary War in the Carolinas. So you're going to want to hit that also. Everything you need to know, I think. And a lot of historians turn to Pat's work. Uh, hit that and his unwearied patience and fortitude, Francis Marion's orderly book. So a lot of resources there for you guys. A lot of things to learn from a guy that's been there and done that. And I hope that uh, you will discover uh, all that Pat has to offer. There's a lot out there. Yeah, Pat. Hey, really, Thanks. it's been an awesome time with you, man. Uh, you're a great friend, uh, a great coworker, and uh, I know we'll see you here pretty soon out in Pineland. But really, brother, appreciate you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your loyal and patriotic service to our country. Thank you for the great words uh, of encouragement that we have brighter days ahead. I think we do. America is a great nation. It always has been. It hasn't never been perfect. But I think that we can, I think we're turning a good leaf, as you mentioned, uh, 
in various ways. And I, I'm going to hold on to that faith, brother. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You know. it, it, always, it always gets better. Yeah. You know, things always get better. Things <laughs> back and forth. Yeah, man. Heal them swing. So. Hey, uh, Pat, you got any parting shots for us? We're, uh, I think we're, we're about that time. We're about a one hour mark. You got anything, any parting shots? If this is going out to, you know, any, anybody who's thinking of going to SF, same thing as before, lead by example and don't be afraid by standing by your convictions. You may go down in flames, but you know what? It'll be a glorious sight and people will hold you up high. <laughs> That's it. Well said, sir. Well said. Thank you, Pat. God bless you, brother.